Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Alan Lopez is a laureate professor of global health at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, University of Melbourne. He's an international authority on the global burden of disease and the use of health data for the development of health systems and policy. Over four years, Professor Alan Lopez and other University of Melbourne researchers have worked with low- and middle-income countries through the Bloomberg Data for Health initiative to help them improve the collection of birth and death data. According to Professor Lopez, people live longer if they benefit from informed, targeted public health action and policies. And that means we need to know reliably what people are dying from. Professor Alan Lopez sat down for a Zoom chat about his work with Dr Andy Horvath. Professor Alan Lopez, if you meet someone new who doesn't know what you do, how do you describe what you do? I think the best way to describe it is I try to create evidence to support health policy. Uh, We'd all agree that any rational allocation of resources and priorities for health, uh, improving the population's health, needs evidence. Now, that can be scientific evidence from research, but it can also be data. I work in both of those areas. So essentially, you measure births and deaths, in other words, mortality in societies. That's right, Andy. The, The key thing that I'm obsessed about and have been for the last 40 years is who dies of what? The idea being that if you're going to improve a population's health, then you need to know which causes of death are the leading causes of death and which particularly which ones are increasing uh, so that you can match interventions to those, uh, those health problems. But you don't know those health problems unless you can measure them. And that's what I try to do. How tricky is it to get consistent measurement even within a country, let alone across countries? Well, in a country like Australia, it's not that tricky because Australia has had what's called a vital registration system for well over 100 years, and it's pretty good at it now. So it captures all the deaths that occur in Australia, and they're all medically certified. So if someone dies in Australia, a doctor who's trained to complete a death certificate will do that according to the rules of the International Classification of Diseases. So we're fairly confident in Australia, although there are some mistakes, that Doctors here are measuring the causes of death and certifying them pretty reliably. That is not the case in many, many other countries. In fact, over half the countries of the world, the death registration systems are are in a very, very dysfunctional state. You mentioned that this is important for health policy. How accurate are these measurements? And give us an example of how things have implemented from your data or your data processes? Well, again, in Australia, I'll make the point that uh, death uh, data are pretty reliable. So let's take a couple of examples. Up until the 1970s, motor vehicle accident mortality in Australia was rising um, pretty much year on year. And you could measure that in the vital registration system in Australia. It just showed death rates going up and up and up. And then in the early 1970s, The Australian government, uh, civil society in Australia, Mothers Against Drink Driving, all of these groups said, we've had enough. We need to do something to stop these particularly young men killing themselves from drink driving, from not wearing seatbelts. And so there was a, um, a legislation introduced as a result of those data. 
And as and what we now see in Australia is that uh, mortality from road traffic accidents is lower than it was ever in history. So it's about as low as it was when cars were introduced uh, in the early 1920s. Another good example, Andy, is lung cancer, which also was rising steadily in Australia, firstly in males, and then because women started to smoke a couple of decades after men, you started to see the death rates rise progressively in women. And, and again, the data were very clear in Australia about these rising death rates from lung cancer. Australian government took action in the 1970s, along with many other countries, and we're now seeing dramatic declines in lung cancer and other smoking-related mortality. Right. So these lifestyle health movements like using sunscreen or wearing a seatbelt or going on a Mediterranean diet are actually changing mortality and therefore life expectancy? Absolutely. Uh, and a very good example, if we take the start of those two uh, interventions I mentioned in the early 1970s, Australian life expectancy had not changed very much, particularly for males, between about 1950 and 1970. As Australia began to experience the full effects of the tobacco epidemic, men smoking in great, great numbers in the first half of last century, uh, but also poor diet, lack of exercise and so on. Uh, and then in 1970, we started to see these massive interventions based on these data, showing that it's getting very bad in Australia. Life expectancy hasn't increased very much at all. We need to do something. So there was dramatic um, government policy intervention against tobacco, uh, unhealthy diets, road traffic accidents, alcohol control, and so on. And we saw a life expectancy increase since 1970 by three to four years every decade. It's virtually half a year per annual uh, calendar year. And that continued right up until about 2005, 2006. Uh, and then, then we began to see a deceleration in that increase. But absolutely, these interventions lower mortality from major causes of death and lead to increasing life expectancy. So life expectancy has stalled. I mean, it can't go on indefinitely, right? Correct. So we can't live, for, uh, we're not immortal, Andy, so we will all die at some stage and that means everyone in the population will die so they will, will not have an infinite life expectancy. But the key thing is, where is it stalling in Australia? Australian life expectancy has not increased in the last five years. And yet that level of tapering off in life expectancy is still significantly lower, two or three years for females compared to Japanese women and about half a year less than Japanese men and, and about a year less than some others and living in Switzerland and Europe. In other words, we have not stalled at a level that other populations have attained. Professor, is there a difference from even suburb to suburb? I imagine there's a difference between large geographic locations, but what's the socioeconomic element from suburb to suburb? Well, there's two, two aspects of the socioeconomic um, point, uh, issue to point out, Andy. One is by location. So if you're living in rural or remote areas of Australia, uh, you're likely to have two to three times higher death rates than people living in some of the better off areas in cities. Now, that's in part due to better access to emergency health services, for example, but it's also due in part to the socioeconomic composition of the population. We see strong and widening socioeconomic differentials in mortality in Australia. And they existed pre-COVID, the pre-COVID era. 
We expect that COVID-19 will influence and have an impact on the poorer sectors of the population more than the wealthier sectors. And hence, we expect to see these socioeconomic gradients in mortality widening even further. You've made the comment that in some poorer areas, the mortality is even double. Why is that? Firstly, I think that's an outstanding uh, observation that we should not just sweep under the carpet. In Australia, within Australia, there are groups of the population who have death rates twice as high as other parts of the population. That is, in my view, completely unacceptable. But it's been there for a while. Uh, The problem is it's getting bigger. So over the last uh, decade or so, that gap in in, in mortality rates between the better off and the poorer sectors of Australian population has widened by about uh, 12 to 14% for males and about double that for females. Yes, that's a a moral issue definitely for our government to address. I want to talk more about COVID. COVID COVID-19 has created a whole new landscape for healthcare. It must have had an influence on sort of population dynamics and mortality. One would expect so, Andy. The, um, there are, two again, two components to talk about there. One is the direct effect of COVID-19. These are the deaths coded to the virus itself, and there are about 100 of those in Australia. Now, 100 is not a great number out of about an annual total of 150,000 deaths in Australia. So the direct effects of the virus have been relatively minor in Australia, in part because of good management uh, in uh, in terms of uh, social distancing, banning international travel, other measures that the government took, got to the epidemic very early. They were not not necessarily popular, but they worked. So we do not have this massive epidemic of direct COVID deaths that you see in the United States, the United Kingdom and elsewhere. What we do not know are the indirect effects of COVID-19. So has the presence of the virus managed to multiply up risks, background risks in people with hypertension or diabetes or chronic obstructive lung disease? Will their mortality be higher than it would otherwise have been had there not been COVID-19? Those data uh, are yet to be analysed. We see in other countries like Britain and uh, the United States, China, that there can be a significant indirect impact of COVID mortality on excess deaths. I don't think we'll see very much of that in Australia, but again, I don't think the data are there yet. Professor, this field of population health is quite extraordinary. How did it all start for you? What attracted you to this area to look at the big picture of mortality and therefore life expectancy in populations? Yeah, it's a long story, Andy. Uh, it goes way back to my um, my university days, and I was very keen on the mathematics and, and statistics and the application of mathematical and statistical methods in public health and medicine. I'm not a doctor, not a physician. Uh, I did my uh, PhD on measuring the health of the Australian population between men and women. In those days, in the 1970s, the gap in life expectancy between men and women in Australia had reached about seven or eight years. It was unprecedented and it was a a great social concern. The the answer, by the way, was primarily the evidence around the impact of smoking uh, earlier by Australian cohorts of men, particularly those in the war, they came back to Australia, continued to smoke and began to die in large numbers. And so we saw that effect. I studied that for my doctoral thesis and was fascinated by 
this whole area of uh, medical statistics and epidemiology telling us so much about how we could improve population health and reduce premature mortality through uh, interventions that had known established impact. So, for example, tobacco control interventions like increasing the price of cigarettes, banning promotion and advertising had an impact. And what I was keen to do was to work with national mortality data to measure that impact. What other changes have you seen in this field? Is it collectively referred to as epidemiology? There are two types of epidemiology. There's the epidemiology that looks at the causes of disease. This is what's called analytical epidemiology, where it observes a population who are, for example, smoking and a population who are not smoking, and it waits a while till people die, and then it measures the death rate differences between these. Uh, those sorts of studies are analytical epidemiology. I do a few of those, but there are far, far greater analytical epidemiologists on the planet than I am. Uh, Sir Richard Pito at Oxford, who I work a lot with, is probably among the greatest of those. But there are many and many very good ones in Australia. I am more concerned with what's called descriptive epidemiology, Andy, which is the measurement, not the causes, but the measurement of disease and mortality patterns in populations. In other words, uh, we, we feel that getting the measurement right of lung cancer and ischemic heart disease and COVID-19 or measles or TB or road traffic accidents matters a lot to policy. As I've given some examples earlier, if you can demonstrate that death rates from a particular condition or disease are rising rapidly or falling rapidly, then you're either doing something wrong or something right. Uh, and it's very, very important for policy to be calibrated according to that knowledge. That field is called descriptive epidemiology. What has surprised you in this area of research, these turning points that uh, perhaps took you by surprise or has everything been kind of predictable? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I think there's some good surprises. For example, the trends in lung cancer mortality in some of the countries like Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, where they've taken tobacco control seriously. Uh, remember, after the Second World War, 70, 70 percent of Australian men smoke. Today, about 15 or 14 percent do. Now, there's still 14 or 15 percent too many, but there's been a huge reduction in uh, smoking and a huge reduction in the death rates from lung cancer. And it's quite wonderful as a descriptive epidemiologist to watch this rise and particularly watch this fall. You can see that a smoking control works. The same with HIV. A relatively recent epidemic. The same with ischemic heart disease, the long-term decline in coronary um, heart disease and stroke in Australia and other countries by about 70 to 80 percent, um, 70 to 80 percent over the last four or five decades. That is a huge and unheralded achievement in public health. There's a idea out there in society, and it may be a misconception, I'll get you to clear it up for us, that the generation behind us won't live as long. Is that true? And why is it so? I think there, that's, there's a chance that that is true. Had you mentioned that for any other generation, I would have said you're wrong. I would not say that now. I would say we don't know, um, obviously, but there is there are real concerning trends in Australia, particularly, not only Australia, United States, uh, but Australia's up there, uh, which suggest that that is not an outrageous contention, that life expectancy for the generation born in the last 10 or 20 or 30 years will be lower than um, their mothers and fathers. And that, uh, is, I think, is a major public health concern. 
We have achieved a lot of what we're going to achieve in terms of mortality reduction through smoking control, but there's still more to be done. But the really big concern, I think, Andy, is that three or four decades ago, Australians began to become obese in, in large numbers. And now we have one in three Australian adults uh, obese, clinically obese, uh, and, and about another one in three uh, overweight. Both of those categories carry significant excess risk of death from primarily from major vascular disease like heart attacks and stroke, but also from some cancers. Those death rates, as we've seen now for cardiovascular disease, are no longer declining. They, in fact, in Australia are, are or are about to start to rise. The long-term decline is over. And we think that that is largely attributable to the impact of obesity rises in Australia three or four decades ago, and the fact that Australian public policy, as indeed elsewhere, has been relatively unsuccessful in bringing down levels of obesity, uh, whereas in the case of tobacco, we've done remarkably well. Yes, that old chestnut of diet and exercise, which we all kind of know, but yet we're still in a population sense, more obese than we used to be. Any clues how to move forward with that one? Because the campaigns so far have been unsuccessful, as you've said. Oh, I think it's, it's very complex, Andy. It does not mean it's impossible. We must not equate the two, but it's complex. You, you um, do not have to smoke, but you do have to eat. And mm. so you need to obviously choose food in a sensible way and exercise. But let me just focus on food. Because I think if you go back and look at earlier generations of Australians, Australians born in the 30s, 40s and 50s, you don't see a lot of obesity in those populations. So the Australian diet, Australian exercise patterns, lifestyle was working in terms of controlling levels of obesity in the population. Since about nine, the mid-1980s and 1990s, that has not worked. And so it's a matter of looking at the reasons why people are becoming obese. And obviously, one of those has got to do with exercise. But in my view, the exercise patterns are less important, much less important than simply overeating, that Australians now are eating much more than they need. And they're tending to eat high calorie uh, foods, as well as a lot of uh, sugar. So I think that We've changed our diet, and there's a number of reasons for that. It's not just pointing this out to people and saying you've got to stop eating uh, hamburgers or stop drinking a sugary sweet Coca-Colas and so on. It's much more complex than that. We need to look at the drivers in society that are facilitating that consumption in parts of the population. I agree. I, I've got a hunch it's got to do with stress and convenience in today's lifestyles? I think it has a lot to do with um, convenience. It probably has a lot to do with stress, but manifested through behavioural patterns, Andy. So if you're stressed at work, you're time poor, you come home, you've got family responsibilities, you've got other responsibilities, it's easier to choose meals that are quicker to prepare, and but not necessarily healthier. It's also probably cheaper to buy some of these less healthy options than it is to buy um, healthier diet components. So there's a number of reasons related to employment, related to income to some extent, related to the way that time is organized within society and families, um, related to employment characteristics, people who are working in an environment where you don't have a lot of individual flexibility might be more driven by stress and stressful situations and hence more likely to smoke and have poor diet and lack of exercise than people who have more freedom at their workplace. Professor Alan Lopez, what would you like the public to think about next time they see 
life expectancy figures in the news or commentary about our mortality? I would like them to think that as Australians, we can do better. We have an extraordinary environment. We are a very blessed society. We have an amazingly uh, competent and useful and uh, health system. We can do better. I would like Australians to look at these numbers and say, why are we living three years less than the Japanese or the Swiss? Why is there a gap? Uh, why, is this, why are Australian mortality rates not continuing to decline? What is it that we as a population can and should be doing that doesn't take away from our I individual enjoyment of being Australians and living in Australia, but nonetheless guides us in a more healthy journey uh, towards increasing our life expectancy? It is possible. We're simply not thinking about it collectively and behaving in a way that would reduce mortality rates further. Professor Alan Lopez, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Very welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you to Alan Lopez, Laureate Professor of Global Health at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on June 18, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.